Mindfulness Mode 486. I'm still processing that, Bruce. There were nights that we laid awake. We couldn't even sleep because the heat was so bad. We just laid there just dying. Hey, welcome to Mindfulness Mode today. I'm Bruce, Bruce Langford, your host and mindfulness life coach. So great that you're here. I have one of the most fun-loving, outgoing, adventurous, courageous, fearless, well, let me qualify that fearless part, guests with me today. And when I say qualify the fearless part, I was fortunate enough to see my guest live in Reading, Pennsylvania, Justin Schenk's event, the Growth Now Movement Live event. And you won't believe what he did at that event in order to to kind of describe fear and to talk about his fear and how he meets his fear head on. He took a live tarantula on the stage with him and man, did that ever make a, a memory for me to, to tell to other people because you don't see that every day. Yes, I uh, really enjoyed hearing Chuck at that event. And oh, before I tell you more about Chuck, at the end of this episode, I'm going to offer you something to help your children get mindfulness, help you teach mindfulness to your children. So it's a free download for you. It's all about it at the end. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode with my friend Chuck Balsamo. Mindful tribe, I can just feel it. I'm telling you, we are going to have a terrific, in-depth conversation because I am here with a terrific guy. I'm here with Chuck Balsamo. And Chuck, are you in mindfulness mode? Let's start with that. I am in mindfulness mode. You know why? Because I'm in your circle right now. You're Yoda. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm watching you uh, pick up my aircraft out of the mud and just change my world and, and inspire me today. So yes, the answer is yes. Well, Chuck Balsamo inspires so many people with what he does. He's done amazing things in this world. And I'll tell you, he is a speaker, but he's also what he calls a life expert, which is very cool. He's a former realtor. He guides people to what he calls the three summits of total wellness. And we'll talk about that in the show. He's a person that back in his 20s built one of the top real estate teams in the nation. And from there, he's built a huge platform of influence and added all kinds of layers of knowledge and experience. He speaks all over the world, many times to audiences over 100,000 in number in stadiums and conferences. I met Chuck down in. Where was it? Reading, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. That's right. At Justin Shank's event. Justin was throwing an event called Growth Now Movement Live, which was so terrific. And that was back in February. And it was so exciting to meet you there, Chuck. And you really made a difference there. You showed up on the stage, not by yourself, but with your friend, with a tarantula in a cage. (laughs) And you were talking about the fear 
that can paralyze us. And wow, what a see uh, how much I remember that talk because you showed up with a tarantula. That was really fun, Chuck. So, Chuck, I, I just want to ask you, what does mindfulness mean to you? Oh, man. You know, mindfulness, and first of all, let me just qualify this by saying, Bruce, when you invited me on the show, my first thought was, what value? I always ask, what value can I add to this particular audience? And if I can't add value and I can't figure that out, then I'll decline. Mm -hmm. And I was nervous about it because, you know, again, I wasn't flattering you in, in the open. Your level of expertise, your knowledge and experience in the mindfulness community is in my opinion, you're one of the top guys in the nation and world right now. So I didn't want to come on here and just kind of blah, 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 blah. You know, I really wanted to add some value. So I, I think I found my angle. And when we talk about mindfulness, I would, I would not say that I'm an expert, but I did think to myself, how did I get to this point in life? You know, like you said, uh, I, I, when people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I'm an extraordinary life expert because it goes far beyond any of my ventures. I have an extraordinary life. It goes all the way into my deepest relationships, into what I do with my time, where I've been in the world. It's, it's a combination of four hour work week. It's I'm living for now and I'm living for the future. I dream, I create great, tremendous victory for other people. I'm an encourager and I love my life. Most of the time I love my life. So what is mindfulness for me? I think in some ways I had to go back and go and ask that question to myself. Maybe someone like you would know that answer right away, or some of the people in your community would know the answer right away. For me, I had to really say, what is it? You know, because I think on accident, I have achieved a level of mindfulness. You, you don't make it to certain places in life if you don't, if you can't keep things together inside of your mind, you just fly apart, right? So where is the unconscious competence? I've read a lot of books on mindfulness. I'm a person of Christian faith. And so I lean on that quite a bit for peace in, in my mind space. But I would say mindfulness for me at this stage of life is this. It is what I'm calling the orchestra of life. So I've gone from giving no attention to the space in my mind, none whatsoever, just five or 10 years ago. To using mindfulness as a morning routine, kind of like the reset, clear the mind for the next day, right? Right. But it was like when I did that, it was mindfulness was a place I went to, a state that I visited, right? So from there, I progress. And this is the way I'm living now to realizing that mindfulness is a culmination of every single thing happening in my life. So I look at my entire life and I see that as an orchestra. And if one instrument is way off, then the sound is not beautiful, right? So I think mindfulness is a, like I said, the orchestra of life. It's not just me focusing on my mind and what's happening in there. It's also focusing on everything that's happening outside of there that's affecting that. And it's creating the kind of life I want to have so that I don't have to necessarily wake up every day and overcome chaos and overcome those negative things, you know? And so I want to stop there and, and just maybe you can chime in on that. I have a lot more that I could say. 
you know, about the orchestra of life. Well, I think mindfulness is something that is unique to every single one of us. And from the moment you stepped on the stage at Growth Movement Now, I thought this guy would be an amazing guest on my show. And the reason is because I love to talk to people from all walks of life who have different ways of approaching life and approaching this world. And you obviously have this way of it's all about giving back it's all about moving forward Thanks, you man. have enthusiasm you have determination you have focus that came across on the stage that day and i know that you give back in all kinds of huge ways recently you traveled to bahamas to yeah. see what was going on there as a result of the the disastrous hurricane they had tell us about that what was that like for you well, I co-lead the Disaster Relief Division of the Dream Center in Los Angeles, which in itself is an amazing story. And we went to Florida because the hurricane was supposed to hit there. When it didn't, we thought, all right, we'll go up the coast. And then my son was on the team and he's a big dreamer. He said, I bet we can get into the Bahamas. In fact, my daughter even sent a message, said, Dad, why don't you jump over to the Bahamas? That's where the disaster is. And it's a long story, but as a matter of fact, a whole message could come out of it sometimes you've got to push your way forward and into what you believe to be the move, you know, and yes. we were on the first ship there with supplies. Wow. We built a network of leaders throughout Freeport. And now with that network are sending supplies and builders into the Bahamas right now to help with rebuilding. And so, yeah, it was an, it was an amazing time. And I felt very fortunate to be able, you know, when you can represent large organizations and you have lots of resources, human resource, volunteer base, money, supplies, and you can do something good. It's really the benefit is more to me, the feeling of goodness, that, that feeling of satisfaction you get from doing that. People say, oh, it's so great what you're doing. And I think, gosh, you know, if they only knew how good it makes you feel to do that, nobody would thank me. What because did the you see so when you first got off that boat and walked oh. onto the Bahamas? Well, we were afraid. We had heard reports that people were going to be mobbing the ship, jumping on the ship, sinking the ship. I mean, there was all kinds of things, you know. Right. There was, uh, was a team from a fire department in Miami that just went of their own accord. It was, and I don't, I don't want to create any kind of uh, negativity towards the government in the Bahamas, but it felt like there was, I don't know if there was a lack of infrastructure for helping, but we got there and it was like, uh, we just felt like we were just on our own. Not only were we on our own, it took us forever to get our supplies. We were like, I think our supplies have been confiscated. We don't know what's happening right now. And it was complete chaos. The grid is completely down. There were sections in a place called High Rock where we were taken to and we were renovating, you know, ripping out the wet materials and houses in some sections. But we got when we got to High Rock, there were whole sections where it looked like a nuclear bomb had landed and there was not a single wall standing up on a foundation anywhere in sight. People were still searching for relatives. One guy said, you see that blue house all the way in the distance over there? It's just a little square house, maybe 15 by 15. Said seven of my relatives were in that house and we haven't found a single one of them. They were just swept away. Another guy said, see the mango tree behind me? My son stayed two days in that mango tree waiting for the waters to recede. It's just unbelievable. I mean, lost like I've never seen before. Wow. And, and tell us, how did you deal with your emotion? That must have been so emotional oh, moving question. into that. 
You know, Bruce, you just went so deep into my mind, into my life when you asked that question. One of the deepest questions I've been asked in a long time. In fact, I've been trying to explain it to people since we got back. And I have not been able to, I've, you know, in some of my talks, I bring it up and I talk about it. I, I feel no discredit to anyone who's served in terrible war times, conditions. But I feel like the guy who got discharged out of a war zone. And for the people who remain behind, I, I can't, to some degree, I feel like I can't enjoy my life. I can't enjoy a single meal since I've returned home. It, it, the tragedy that's out there right now, uh, the heat, the humidity, just the, the harsh conditions of living with no air conditioning, uh, no supplies. I mean, their their ATM machines were running out. They were running out of gasoline, running out of you know just general supplies, food. We took Cliff bars with us and for food, you know and. And so I'm still processing that, Bruce. There were nights that we laid awake. We couldn't even sleep because the heat was so bad. We just laid there just dying. I mean, I just, I mean, my family, we're an adventure family. We've, we've spent time in some really harsh conditions. This might've been the worst conditions I've ever been in. And, and I've been in the worst third world scenarios. This was, this was tops for me. Wow. And how long were you there, Chuck? Well, we were there for just about a week, maybe a week and a half. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to be going back. So tell um, me the story of one person or one family that yeah, you met and you helped. Well, there's, there's several families. There's one family. It was kind of cool. We, we went in there and helped them, you know, shoveling out. It's not like you can go through there and you can renovate a hundred houses. Uh, the guy from Schindler's list, Oscar Schindler, he was a German industrialist during Hitler's regime. And he employed 1100 Jews in his factory and saved them from annihilation during that time. And he was presented an award by the, the Jewish leadership. And he's in, there's that famous scene in the Schindler's List, you know, if you've ever seen the film where he just starts crying and said, I could have done more, I could have done more. Mm -hmm. And the leader looks at him and says, he who saves one soul saves the world entire. And it gives me chills every time I quote it because it's true. You, sometimes we can't help the whole world, but in times like that, you've just got to focus on the one person in front of you and just give them everything and make that difference. And somehow it's so bizarre the way it happens. It ripples through the entire country, the region, the people around it, you know, and, and I think that's how you cope with situations where there's an enormous need and there's just no way possible you're going to help everyone. Wow. But, but yeah, to answer your question, I mean, there was a family that had lost everything and the waters were up all the way up in the top floor. They were up a long story, but the door ripped off the top floor. Uh, they put a mattress up against the door. All the family was up there. The husband had to go and swim through like seven feet of water to get something. I forget what it was. And they're telling me the story and we're there. There's power lines down everywhere. And she's got a collection of wine bottles, you know, all over her counter and she's washing them off and she's wine is her specialty, you know, and mm -hmm. I don't drink wine. I came out of substance addictions and I stay away from all substances. I'm a substance clean guy. I'm just high on life, you know, just air and coffee, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess coffee would be my addiction. Now she breaks open the bottle and says, would you like to have a sip? I haven't had alcohol in my body in so many years, decades. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to go for it. I decided to just respect her in that moment. And I sipped that wine with her and just sat there as this woman had the most positive attitude I've ever seen in my life. She was so thankful. The family was safe. 
She said, we're going to rebuild. She was joking. The energy in that household shook me. Wow. You know? That's incredible. Wow. Well, just switching gears a little bit, you have done so much from all the real estate work that I mentioned to now speaking for audiences of over 100,000. Do you often speak to audiences that large? No, not often. Usually just once or twice a year. And the up until about maybe seven or eight years ago, my audiences were medium size. Mm-hmm. I have been blessed. I know lots of speakers that are really trying to get into the speaking circuit. And I feel very fortunate. I feel very blessed. From the second I started speaking, doors opened. And I don't know why that is, but they did. And so several years ago, I, there was a leader in Los Angeles, the leader of the Dream Center. And he was on Twitter. And you know how it is with social networks. You never know who you're going to connect with. And right. it wasn't like I was trolling the internet, trying to find a famous person to connect with. But we had a book that was being both of our books were being published at the same time and they were similar. And I sent him a message or tweeted him and just said, Hey, our books are twins and they're going to be born at the same time or something like that. Next thing you know, I'm being invited to speak for him in Los Angeles and it's in an iconic building. I've been there since the 1920s. It was the tallest building in North America at the time when it was first built. It's legendary. It looks like the Roman Coliseum. And from there, just doors started just opening up and opening up. And even with Africa, I was in Africa about 15 years ago. And I was going by the stadium. I'd done an event, maybe 10,000 people at night uh, were at the event. It was a very successful event. And I was on my way back to the airport. And I said, what is that? What is that stadium? And they said, oh, that's the soccer stadium. That's the Mandela Stadium over there. And I I just rolled the window down and I just stuck my hand out. And I said, hey, I'm coming back to speak there one day. You know, I just yelled at the stadium. And 10 years later, the, the guy who had set up our meetings back then said, you won't believe this. I'm in the company of a man who does an annual event. At the time, there's about 60,000 people a year coming to this event. And he wants to extend an invitation to have you come and speak in the stadium. And I thought it was a hoax. I figured it was just a scam. And I said, yeah, of course I remember you. But, you know, is this legit? Next thing you know, I'm speaking there. And on the first year, it was a presidential election. So the president, I get, I get taken to the stadium about four hours before I was supposed to arrive. They come to get me. I didn't even showered yet. They said, we need to take you now. I said, what do you mean? I thought I had time. I'm just relaxing, getting my mind on, you know? And they said, well, the president's going to be there. News has gotten out. And so uh, we're not going to be able to get in if we don't leave right now. So I get there. The president's on the platform. It's just an amazing moment. President, vice president, members of his cabinet. I mean, it's just 27 million people on live TV and radio. And which president was this? President um, uh, Yowery Museveni. Okay. President of Uganda, the nation of Uganda, and then five nations surrounding Uganda, you know, watch this event live. And so, you know, it's, it's an opportunity. I get to speak to 27 million people who are just glued to the television and radio, just listening to every word. That's a real opportunity, you know? And what was the message uh, you shared with them? So the message that really stood out, you know, it was, it was my, third message there. I grabbed the Toys R Us stuffed animal and paid $75 for the stuffed animal. And I spoke about, it's an annual event. It's on New Year's Eve and it's for the people of Uganda and the surrounding nations. It's like, uh, get ready for the next year. You know, it's about dreaming for the next year. It's about, Mm -hmm. you know, getting ready for the next year. And so it's a very hyped up event. It's very, uh, they have, you know, national musicians and performers 
you know, that are just on the platform nonstop. It's a 24 hour event culminates at midnight and they give me the prime, you know, speaking spots, you know, right around between 10 o'clock and midnight. And, uh, it ends with fireworks. And so I ended up launching a stuffed animal with helium balloons. I had three clusters of balloons, I had an engineer develop this whole thing out for me, the different lengths of the, of the string so that the balloons would not bang against each other. And, and he created a guide rope to tell me how wide they should be filled so they didn't pop 100 feet up and just the whole thing. And I had the colors of the flag and uh, we put a cape, the flag on the back of the dog and we, uh, we put a little blinking light so that he could be identified when he's on his way out of the stadium. And, and I launched it with helium. The, the event coordinator tells me afterwards, what's really funny is that a lot of those people come from the villages and this is third world, you know? And he said, a lot of those people don't even know about the force of helium. They don't know about the element of helium. And so a lot of people just felt like you did magic, right? Like right. You were just a wizard on the stage. You did magic. And, and uh, that became the moment that the nation really started to listen. So now when I go back, you know, every time I go back, I obviously I feel a lot of pressure. There's no way I'm going to outdo that. I finally come to come to grips with that. I mean, how do you outdo launching? I mean, maybe Elon Musk comes and gets me and launches me to Mars, uh, <laughs> but I don't think there's anything higher than that. So now I'm just focusing with empathy and making sure that I'm using the attention I now have to just really get into their heart and give them something they can really hold on to. Do you usually use a prop when you speak on stage? A lot of times I do. Not always though. I do. I always want to. I think the props are very important. Like you said, you know, you remembered the spider, you know, you remembered me dancing for the yes. first time in front of people on that stage to face my biggest fear. Yes, I did. It was an amazing thing. A lot of times when I speak also, I I'm speaking to myself first which, you know, is cliche. Everybody says to do that. But I do it on a level that I'll put myself out there and I'll attempt the impossible in front of people, you know? And I think that when I make myself that vulnerable, it speaks a message that is just on such a soul level with people, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's huge power and vulnerability. And speaking of props, you carry a prop around with you all the time, everywhere you go. You've got this massive beard <laughs> that I can see you, you can see me, but a lot of our listeners are just hearing this episode. But you've got this incredible beard, which is, I think, kind of your trademark. What are you hiding behind that beard? Oh, you know, it's funny, Bruce. I love your questions. You are really good at this at podcasting. So, yeah, you know what I'm hiding what? is probably for another episode because it would be really deep. I have dealt with lots of insecurities in my life and I don't hide behind that, but I am very quick to let people know. So other people out there who deal with insecurities in their own mind, for a lot of years, I had to be like, okay, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. I had to just constantly be intentional with my mind. I had to operate in conscious thinking uh, because I, I had failed to... Uh, change my unconscious thinking. And it took a long time. I'm not the same person with those same insecurities. But when I grew my beard, I realized that it covered up the fact that I feel one of the flaws in my body. I have two flaws in my body. One, I think my eyes are too close together. <laughs> and then the other one is I feel like my chin is a little too short. I'd like for my chin to be another half an inch bigger. And then I'd feel really good about the symmetry of my face. And so I like having the beard. I like the way I look with it. It extends my face significantly. 
And I just, it, it makes me feel powerful. So I keep it. Well, your eyes radiate. Your Thanks, eyes man. are incredible, beautiful blue eyes. And I, Thanks, I oh yeah, I look right into your eyes and I see there's kindness. Thanks. I see compassion and empathy. And uh, I think that it's very interesting to look at you because I think that there's so many stories in there. But what is the story that caused that insecurity that you wow. just described? Yeah, you know, and I'll go as far as I can on this, protecting other people who are alive in the world today and in my circle. You know, I would say, and it even goes back to when I was a kid, and I think, as a matter of fact, as you can tell, this is not my expertise, but if I were to write a few books on mindfulness, one would be about the orchestra of life. Another would be about the importance of intentional parenting. I think that mindfulness begins with intentional parenting. Uh, my mom was always my, just my best friend in, in life in my childhood and was a deep encourager. Uh, there were other people in my life who didn't realize that the effect they were having on my self-image. And I started to dislike myself early in life. And there were some people who just broke me and made me feel like I was never going to live up to you know, the, perf the perfect standard. And so what would happen is I just started noticing my flaws obsessively and I started feeling insufficient. In fact, two times when I was a kid, I, I would say it was a true attempt on my life. I mean, one time with a, a pistol loaded, a revolver, it was cocked and my finger was on the trigger. And I know I put enough pressure for that gun to go off. And and, and it didn't. I remember I was crying and I remember thinking to myself, wow, I actually went over the line. I could have just died there. Another time was with pills and I woke up a few hours later just throwing up. And I just remember both times writing a goodbye letter and blaming, you know, a certain person for just breaking me. And, mm -hmm. you know, what's crazy is I, I felt, I don't think that it was intentional. I think what happens is people are broken themselves and then you know, they're distracted. And I know with my daughter, she's adopted three children and she's adopting her fourth child now. And these kids have come out of abusive, very, very severe abusive backgrounds. And in just a few years time, I have seen their lives change to the point that champions are rising up out of these kids. When they first came into the family, their insecurity level was so high. You couldn't, you, they were, they were not functioning, you know? And so I see the power of love and I see the power of intentionality. And I think as parents, we really need to work on our own emotional quotient. Uh, I think we need to understand ourselves, personality tests and figuring out, you know, even one test I took way back, one of the first of all time, you know, the five love languages. I'll never forget it. Gary Chapman, and I forget the co-author, but Gary said, you know, in his book, you know, every person has one of five love languages. Well, I was a words of encouragement person, words of affirmation. So the person that I had conflict with was a quality time person. Well, I'm the weakest in that. So I would never give him quality time. And the more he down talked me, the less time I gave him. And we just got further and further apart. But neither one of us knew the dynamics that were in play. And so he felt hated by me. I felt hated by him. And that scarred me. And, and honestly, all the way up into my 40s, I'm 48 now, I dealt with severe depression. And I will say one more thing, Bruce, so in case you want to move topics. In Justin Shank's podcast on Growth Now, episode 62, 
I spoke a few years ago about how I finally cracked the code on my own depression and how I am creating happiness at will. And it was groundbreaking. I finally, at 40 some years old, reached a point where I overcame depression for the last time in my life. And at the time, it was a theory. Now it's been proven. I've not been depressed since then. And so how did you I, do I'm that? thankful. Yeah, well, one of the ways that I've been able to do that is, so it goes back to the orchestra of life thing to some degree. There's a parallel with that. And I've become very aware of my state. So I ask myself on a regular basis, what percentage of me is healthy right now? And what percentage is unhealthy? So let's just say I'm 60% healthy and I feel 40% unhealthy. 40% is a lot, by the way. Yes, it is. You know, if it ever gets upside down and it's like 60% unhappy, I'm sorry, yeah, 60% unhappy, well, now I'm in danger, yeah. you know? And, but I can push through with about 40% of unhappiness. Brendan Burchard talks about, that's the thing with high performers. We can just keep pushing through, man. And it's very dangerous for us to live like that. You know, we can push through when our life is just not right. And we hurt ourselves and hurt other people. So I asked that question first. Then I say, of the part of me that's unhappy, what is it is unwell? Is it, am I angry? Am I insecure? Am I jealous? Am I hurt? Am I offended? Like, what is it? What's causing that? And I start to write down all the causes of that unhappiness. And then I say, can I fix any of this? Let's just say I have a strained relationship with someone. If I have a strained relationship with someone, I maybe it's been happening for years. That other person doesn't want that relationship to be strained any more than I do. So fix it now. What can I do to end that war? It's invisible. It's invisible tension. And I'm going I'm to say to that person, hey, listen, I'm so sorry for anything I've done to contribute to this. I don't want to be at war with you. In fact, I, we were such close friends at one time. I would have given my life for you. And what do we do to repair this? I'm not saying that we need to hang out every day again. But I just, when I run into you, I, want you, I don't want you to feel like, oh, I need to avoid Chuck because he's thinking bad of me. Let's, let's remove this barrier between us. Let's heal this. And if, for instance, that unhappiness is the fact that my life is overscheduled, well, what can I do? It's, it's Wednesday now as we're recording this. What can I do? I still have Thursday and Friday. Can I cancel 20 hours out of my schedule right now? Can I just, can I forward it to next week? Hey, listen, I'm sorry. I can't keep this commitment. I've overcommitted myself and I need to cancel or postpone. And it's cleaning up my life so that I reach this intentional state of, again, what I call the orchestra of life. It is me creating a life. I don't have to use mindfulness to overcome the negativity I feel from the chaos or the, the tension. A lot of people just leave their life the way it is, and then they just try to meditate to overcome the negative impact of that. And I think that if we would spend more time in this, the orchestra of life, spend more time in figuring out where is that unhappiness coming from? Can I create a life that I don't have to convince myself with a, a routine, a gratitude practice, you know, a routine? Like, I'm thankful for my life. Can I create a life that I'm just truly thankful for? I don't know. I'm sure you've got a lot to say about that, right? For sure. Well, I want to know what role God plays in your life. 
Yeah, you know, and and it's and thank you for asking that. You know, I would assume in a mindfulness uh, community that people have many different faiths. You know, and sure. uh, and it's really cool, honestly, for me to be invited here as a person uh, with a Christian faith. I would say something very interesting, and that is that when I first started learning about affirmations, I had a business coach that I was paying a thousand a month back in the day when coaching was brand new, mm-hmm. and he was big on affirmations. Well, then I brought affirmations back to the Christian circle and people said, whoa, 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 that's voodoo, man. That's mind control. That's dangerous. You need to stay away from that, right? And so in the Christian circles, a lot of times people see, they want to derive all peace from the spiritual side. So there's a distinction between the soul and the spirit and the soul would be the mind, will, and emotions. And the spirit would be the part of us maybe that communicates with God. and so. There's this idea that when God is present in your life, there is a spiritual completeness, but then there's the beginning of a transformation in the mind. So a lot of people in the Christian faith can agree hesitantly in the scriptures, Romans chapter 12, it talks about be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. So the idea is that there needs to be a transformation, a reconciliation of the mind. You're carrying forward all the memories from the past. You've got all of this pressure inside of you, and, and you're trying to be spiritual. And a lot of people just go, I'm just going to keep dumping this on God, and I'm going to keep dumping this on God, but they never deal with what's happening in the mind. So I started to distinguish this and say, man, I think Christian people should give more attention to what's happening in the mind because I think when the mind is healthy, it's easier for me to be spiritual, right? I think that's true. I think that makes a lot of sense. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you this one question. I, I can see that we're starting to run short on time, but were you ever bullied? Do you have a story about bullying or maybe you were a bully? Do you have a story where mindfulness would have made a difference? You know, nobody's ever asked me that question and my mind is blown again. This is the deepest interview I've ever been on because you're asking the perfect questions. And I just had so much clarity when you just asked it. The answer is, I was a bully. And I think what happened was, I felt like I was bullied. So then I projected it onto the weaker people I could find. And I did it for attention. Uh, There were times that I did terrible things to kids in school. Um, I uh, I would make noises and faces at certain people. And my friends would laugh. I'm just thinking back. I would, I fought a lot. I fought with my fists. I would meet at the dump road and fight people. Um, And I'm not proud of that. It was a terrible time in my life. I was trying to just, I guess, vent my angers. And it's one of the, and the biggest epiphany on bullying came to me one day when uh, someone sent me an email back when email first came out. I'll just say someone someone in my circle, and said, it was a high school student, said, would you come have lunch with me one day? I sit by myself every day, and it hurts. I mean, I, I could cry right now. I feel tears in my eyes. Mm. And, it, and it just made me realize, and I think that's one of the reasons I do care about people so much. Empathy was developed in my heart that day, and, and during that time of life, it hurts me to see so many people striving for approval from others 
and feeling so neglected, so hurt. It shows up in the business community. It shows up in the churches. It shows up anywhere there are people. Matter of fact, I've met adults and I've met seniors who have never healed. I've met seniors with a very, very low, undeveloped EQ where so much hurt has been carried all the way up into the 60s and 70s of age. And hey, I want to do anything I can. And I would say this, Bruce, because I know we are running out of time. You know, I think a lot of times there's an emphasis. I need to work on my mind. And a lot of the techniques that are taught are for me to use. And I'm reading Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you read it, but it's, whoa, it's one of the best books I've read. You asked me when we were talking, you know, what books I've read on mindfulness and uh, the book, uh, The Mindful Athlete is a big recommendation for me. George Mumford, I think, uh, I try to say George Mueller all the time. It's a glitch in my head, but I'd like to say that I think that we possess the power to assist with the mindfulness of others. My encouragement, my love, my belief in other people can heal them to a large degree. And other people have healed me. My wife, you know, my wife in all my years, I've had failed ventures in the early days. I'd come home and I go, honey, I'm going to make all this money. And I calculated it out on paper and it wouldn't work out. Then I'd try something else. You know, my wife never said one time, you're just a dumb dreamer. You know, you need to get it together. You need to get a real job. You know, all those different things. My wife never one time in any of our fighting said, you're just like you're blank, you know, or you're just like that person. You know, you're, she's always believed in me. She's always encouraged me. I'm not making this up. She's literally an angel in my life. And people like that come alongside of someone who's broken like me. It just heals us. And, you know, I think we can do that for people. I know we can. Yeah, I'm absolutely, totally sure we can. And you've already answered some of the questions I was going to answer in my my quick round. I've got five questions I always ask. The first one is, who is one person who has influenced you? And I'm sure that's your wife then, it sounds like. And the second question was, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? I would say a a few ways, but to answer it very quickly, the day I realized that the day I became aware of, like Tony Robbins has this thing where he says, you got to take your thoughts and you got to look at how big they are inside of your mind. And there's, there might be this big problem and it's giant. It's like right in the front of your mind, you can't see anything else. He says, you got to literally take your hands this wide and take that thought, make it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and make it really small. And then he, then he switches to one hand. I'm showing you on screen, but we're mm-hmm. on audio. And then he takes your, the you know, the pointer finger and the thumb together and he squishes it. And then he says, you got to just throw it all the way to the back until it goes out of existence. And then you got to take the thoughts you, you want to focus on and you start when they're really small and you bring them to the front, and you make them bigger, bigger, bigger. And then you got two hands, you take them bigger, 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 bigger. When I started to realize thoughts are very real things, they can be diseases inside of me. They can be life-giving forces inside of me. When I started realizing that there's a lot happening inside of my mind, and just because you can't see it, I wouldn't allow beasts inside of my office just roaming around, chopping at my feet. But we allow beasts inside of our mind devouring us. And when I became conscious of the fact that I actually can control what's going on inside of my mind, it changed my life. So to answer your question, does that answer your question? I yeah, think it does. Yeah, that, that's great. And, and what about breathing? Is breathing 
part of your mindfulness practice? It's new to me. Breathing is, I use the Breathe app, yes. ironically. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, it's, I'd say I'm one year young in the practice of breathing. And I go out on my patio and I play the, I play the Breathe app. Uh, I'm that guy that still needs them to be short sessions because my mind can't handle long sessions. So I look right. for them five to seven minutes or so. And that's about it. And, but wow, uh, man, just breathing. It just changes my life. And it's something that I'm going to pursue and figure out a little bit more. Uh, first was introduced to it maybe 20 years ago when I was in business and, uh, never did anything with it until, you know, about a year ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. Do you have any tips for me on that? Yeah. On breathing? Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to talk to you. Breathing has made a huge difference for me doing incredible deep breathing. I do Wim Hof breathing. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Wim Hof, but I think you could be an amazing Wim Hofer. Do you know who Wim what? Hof is? No, no. Okay. Well, Wim Hof teaches a method of breathing and he's all about cold immersion, cold showers and cold right. immersion. And it does incredible things for your body as far as getting your blood flowing, getting you moving forward and, and feeling wow. positive. And people who have depression talk about how much it's helped them. And wow, there's a whole movement toward Wim Hof. It's W-I-M and his last name is H-O-F. And wow. you'll find Facebook groups. You'll find all kinds of things online about Wim Hof. He's, he's incredible with his breathing techniques. So I Amazing. found it's very, very Amazing. Awesome. Thanks for that tip. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Well, yeah. thank you for coming on the show, Chuck. And it's yeah. just incredible all the stuff you're doing in, in this world. You're helping other people. You're inspiring and motivating. And yes, you are inspiring mindfulness in other people, even if, you know, you don't really necessarily see it that way. I've been looking forward for a long time to talking to you. So it's been absolutely phenomenal. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, just, just a second. Before I say goodbye, how can we reach out and connect with you? I know that you have your website, chuckbalsamo.com, and that's C-H-U-C-K and then B-A-L-S-A-M-O. Is there any other way we should reach out to you? Well, on all social networks at Chuck Balsamo, I'm actually in the process of the biggest transformation and content creation and how I get that out to people of all time in my life. I have a team of people uh, headed by my son right now. And in the coming months, we're going to be able to affect people far more significantly in the past. So I invite anyone to come into the circle and follow me on the different networks. I'd love to be your friend. You'll notice that my community is very positive and I say things with the purpose. I wake up every day and I just believe I make a difference for a living. I'll have you on my mind if you're in my circle and I'll do everything I can to make a difference for you and be inspired by you. So that welcome. is absolutely awesome. Yeah. Thanks again for being on the show. Chuckbalsamo.com. Get yeah. yourself over there, Mindful Tribe, and check it out. And you have a terrific rest of your day, Chuck. Yeah, you too, Bruce. Thanks. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash 
whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. So remember what I said at the top of the show, I have an ebook for you to help you bring mindfulness into the life of your child. It's called 21 Ways to Practice Mindfulness with Your Child Every Day, yours for free. Download it at mindfulnessmode.com slash 21 ways. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.